I'll be reading out of the New King James Version. To the chief musician with stringed instruments on an eight-stringed harp, a psalm of David. O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor chasten me in your hot displeasure. Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I am weak. O Lord, heal me, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Return, O Lord, deliver me. O save me from Save me for your mercy's sake. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In the grave, who will give you thanks? I am weary with groaning. All night I make my bed swim. I drench my couch with my tears. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows old because of all my enemies. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. For the Lord has heard the voice of my weeping. The Lord has heard my supplication. The Lord will receive my prayer. Let all my enemies be ashamed and greatly troubled. Let them turn back and be ashamed suddenly. Let's pray. Well, Lord, thank you for your word. I thank you for all of the experiences that we find in it, real life stuff, people who endured everything that life could throw at them, and they did it with you at their side, proving your faithfulness, your goodness. And I pray that, Lord, you would again use all of this to encourage our hearts, and Lord, also we, we pray for, for Debbie Swecker and the family that as they grieve the loss of Dan, Lord, uh, temporarily so, of course, but we pray that you would be close to them, walk beside them, give them hope. Yeah, just be with them as they grieve and comfort them, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, be seated. Okay, Psalm 6. Originally, by the early church, Psalm 6 was considered one of the the penitential psalms, and it would be read or sung uh, on Ash Wednesday uh, as a part of the liturgy, okay? along, with, uh, seven, uh, along with six other psalms, rather, Psalm 32, Psalm 38, uh, 51, 102, 130, and 143. So originally there was seven uh, penitential psalms uh, in all. Uh, of course, the, the intent was uh, always during that time to, to quote these, to sing those uh, to remember the, the value of repentance. How many of you grew up in a, a liturgical church? Which, which one? Catholic church? Any Lutherans or Presbyterians? Oh, so not, not too many. All right. How many of you don't know what a liturgy is? That's okay. It simply means order, and uh, it's the structure of the service. We, of course, have a liturgy, but it's not like, certainly not like high church and, um, or what is traditionally known as liturgical. Um, maybe we'll... For fun, examine a liturgy sometime. Maybe not. <laughs> uh, liturgies aren't bad. Uh, a lot of them, I think, are uh, have have some value. Um, I don't think I would ever deploy one here. But anyway, yeah. But this uh, particular psalm was removed from the list later on because somebody observed that there's actually no confession of sin. And there's no prayer uh, for forgiveness. So there's now only six uh, penitential psalms. <laughs> uh, now they categorize it as a psalm of lament. A, a psalm of lament. That might be an accurate way of describing the psalm. Maybe not. Uh, we'll see. Uh, maybe we'll figure it out tonight. I don't know. One of the challenges with this particular psalm, like many of the others, is that it provides no historical context. No background, okay? We don't know exactly what was going on in David's life or what inspired him 
uh, to write this particular psalm. And uh, I have said before, uh, because it's so nonspecific, uh, it does provide us some more liberty to apply it more broadly. So if you are enduring something in your life and this seems to, to communicate the way that your heart is grieving or the way you feel, um, uh, I think that's a healthy thing. I think that that's the reason the Psalms are there, is the Holy Spirit used David's experience so that God could relate to us in many different areas of life. And uh, for that reason, many people in sorrow, in joy, uh, seeking God's wisdom, seeking God's character, his heart in all the circumstances, that's why they go here. Uh, it's there. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure of what the Psalms do not cover as far as human experience goes. Isn't that amazing? Uh, I don't know if you guys read other religious books or have. I've read way too many, and uh, I just find that they're so shallow, and they don't really address the human condition or the pain that man endures. Uh, but the Psalms, uh, they leave nothing out, and oftentimes it's completely unrated. Uh, it's raw. It's, sometimes it's painful to read, but so many times you go there and you find David or the sons of Korah, they experience the pain that I'm experiencing now, and God was faithful to them. So the Psalms just have so much value. And um, yeah, what we, we do know, uh, one thing I guess we could say from the historical context is that um, David's enemies are involved, but we don't know who they were. We don't know when it was. Uh, we don't know those particular details. Um, we know that he's grieved. We know that it appears to be both uh, physical, emotional, and spiritual. He's depleted the, the entire man is struggling here. And uh, I know that many people in our church have gone through that. So I wish, I wish we could turn to 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, and go, mm, this is what David's talking about. And then we could establish all this historical context. It's just not there. The psalm <coughs> excuse me, is divided into two sections. So verse 1 through 7, and then verses 8 through 10. Uh, verse 1 is the reason for the psalm originally being considered a, a penitential psalm, psalm of repentance. So let's look at it again. Uh, but before I do, I, per Gabe's request, who does everybody know Gabe? Gabe, raise your hand. Okay. Yeah, Gabe Anzalini. Uh, I'm going to have the verses on the screen, uh, just in case you're um, absent-minded, distracted by a child, you can look up at the screen and know exactly what verse we're on. Is that okay, Gabe? Oh, Lord, do not rebuke me, <laughs> as I'm about to rebuke Gabe. Oh, Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor chasten me in your hot displeasure. So, of course, I mean, you can see why they would think this could be a penitential psalm. You know, rebuke and chastisement imply that David has sinned against the Lord, but no sin is mentioned, as we've said. And David, he doesn't ask for forgiveness. So perhaps he doesn't know what to ask for because there's nothing specific, okay? And uh, if there is no specific, why is David concerned about being rebuked and chastened? How many of you guys feel insecure when you're vulnerable? Um, or for example, when you're driving down the road and you see a cop, what do you do immediately? You slow down, you look at your speedometer because you're just under the assumption that you're wrong. Yeah, and that's probably healthy uh, to check yourself and to, to double check, okay? Yeah. Well, perhaps it's not something that we would 
uh, like in the psalm here, generally consider sin, but it's something we feel ashamed of nonetheless. Okay? Uh, have you ever apologized to your spouse for being sick or being exhausted? Have you? So sorry I'm sick and I can't help out. So sorry, I'm, so, I'm just so tired. Have you ever done that to your spouse? You felt bad for something you can't control? Yeah, sure you have. Have you, ever, have you ever felt bad for not completing a task to the standard, to standard rather, even though you were sapped? Yeah. Ever apologize for the way you feel inside, even though you can't seem to get control of it? How many of you guys have had uncontrollable sorrow? How about uncontrollable irrational sorrow? I've had a few of those in my life. Sometimes it's lasted a day, and I don't know what it is. I don't know, even know why, but I have to go to the Lord to get out of it because I just can't for whatever reason. Just a couple times in my life. Uh, imagine being like that for years. Yeah, that would be something. And then just hearing yourself make excuses sounds completely lame. Yeah. Look at verse 2 and the first part of verse 3. He, David says, Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I am weak. Now, in the word, for the word for, you can put because. Have mercy on me, O Lord, because I am weak. O Lord, heal me because... My bones are troubled because my soul is also greatly troubled. What's he, what's he saying? Is he saying, don't rebuke me? Don't chasten me because I'm weak? Don't chasten me because I'm troubled in body and soul? I mean, he describes himself weak, that is faint. It means to pine away. It's, uh, the, the, the Hebrew word that's related to this is like a leaf that withers. I'm just, I'm withering away. He says, I'm troubled in my bones. It's possibly a reference to his innermost being. Maybe not literally a reference to his bones. Um, the, uh, it's hard in, in, in that culture to make a distinction between the physical and emotional or spiritual. Because to them, the whole person hurt. The whole person suffered due to whatever. So when he says my bones, he may just be saying, it hurts all the way inside of me right now. Okay. And then he, he emphasizes, and he says, my soul is not just troubled like my bones, but it's greatly troubled. It's greatly troubled. And so everything hurts, physically, emotionally, probably, but the emphasis is on his soul being just troubled. So on the one hand, he's concerned about the Lord's rebuke, and on the other hand, he can't, what he can't shake was that life is just being robbed of him. In, in every way, the whole man, okay? He doesn't say which came first or if one caused the other, which is often the case, but perhaps it all came down on him at once. So I think we would say it's one thing to be emotionally drained, spiritually drained, or to be physically drained, but it's altogether different when you're dealing with all three, when you can actually put your finger on every level of pain in your life, physical, emotional, spiritual, and then if you were to add the Lord's rebuke and chastisement, it might be more than someone could bear. It might be. And that may be what's behind verse 1. David may be saying, Lord, if your disapproval were added to my afflictions, that would be more than I could handle. Everything else seems to be against me. And if you were against me at this moment in my life, it would be too much for me. Please don't, don't rebuke me. Don't chastise me. So David then pleads uh, for God to have pity on him, verse 3b and 4. He says, and I don't know why they didn't divide the verses up this way anyway. He says, but you, O Lord, how long? 
Return, O Lord, deliver me, save me for your mercy's sake. Now what he's saying is, God, you feel distant right now. In all of my suffering, in all of this affliction, I don't, I don't really feel your presence. It doesn't mean that God's not there. How many of us confuse you know, perception with reality? Yeah. So if we bring David's plea down from verse 2 and just kind of crunch it into these ones, he's saying, have mercy on me, return to me, deliver me, save me. All of those things pleaded with God to, he says, to do this for mercy's sake. And what that means is he's pleading with God to be consistent with his character. For your mercy's sake, be consistent with your character. Now, when you come to this point in the psalm, does it, do you get the impression that David is remorseful over sin? Or more like that he's, he's vulnerable to danger because of his current state of weakness? Yeah, it's hard to say. It seems like David's saying, Lord, uh, maybe, maybe um, he's been going about all of this stuff. I mean, imagine the pressure of a king, especially during David's reign. It wasn't like Solomon's reign. Well, I mean, I got all this gold. What do I do with it? That wasn't the case with David. Okay? David was, something was always at him. So maybe it has something to do with just all the pressure that's on David uh, from without, from within. And it's, you know, Lord, I tried. Lord, I gave it my best shot, but I can't go any further. I'm not, I'm not up to the task. I'm not strong enough to continue, at least without you. And that's why I need your mercy. That's why I need you to return. That's why I need you to deliver, to save. Yeah. So I would say maybe this. If there is a specific sin, it might be past self-confidence. Is that sinful? Paul said in Philippians 2, he says, have no confidence in the flesh. He says, rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. The idea is, put all of your confidence in Christ, who is able to do far above anything you can imagine. And, uh, and don't trust in your own ability, strength, intelligence, or whatever, but cast it all upon Christ. So maybe it's self-confidence. Okay? David may have stepped out to do something for the Lord, but instead of doing it in the strength of the Lord, he did it in his own strength only to discover insufficiencies, right? When David took the reins, perhaps the Lord said, okay, let's see how this experiment goes. Let's see how well you do. Not as a means of punishing David, but as a method of teaching him. The Lord does that. We see that in the scriptures. Um, But you look back on David's life. You remember when David faced Goliath, he confessed to Saul. He says, oh, it's okay. I know I'm just a youth. Your armor doesn't fit me. Everything's against me, but the battle belongs to the Lord. It's okay. That was a good sort of confidence, but like most of us, after a time, especially a time of success, we think the battle belongs to us. We think, oh, I got this. I got this. It's a little early for that, and I think it's always too early for humanity, but then like David, we discover, uh, we discover our weakness. We discover frailty, um, and it brings anguish to our souls. When people are on a high and they get struck down, some people go really low. Yeah, they go really low. We discover weakness. We feel ashamed. Deep down, I think we knew better. Paul reminded the Corinthians, and I love this passage. He says, and we have such trust through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being of ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant. Well, that really is not meant as a compliment to our humanity saying that we're not sufficient for really anything unless it's screwing up, okay? unless it's proving weakness. Okay? 
And Paul's reminding them. And, and, you know, in Paul's own life, I think that he came to understand two things by experience. First was his own weakness, which he expresses thoroughly in Romans 7, but then, you know, pieces of it all over the New Testament. But he also, through experience, he discovered his constant need for grace. That's 2 Corinthians 12, 9, right? Paul said later, he said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, Philippians 4.13. He tells the Corinthians, you know, when I am weak, he is strong. But as we know from Paul's experience, he was no stranger to self-confidence and what had to happen because of self-confidence in his life. He had to be, he had to be humbled. That's right. Uh, he received a thorn in the flesh, a messenger from Satan, because he had a tendency to get prideful. And so God gave him a... Uh, how many of you guys... Of course, this, there's only one way to discover if your car has a governor in it, to go really fast. Uh, I remember discovering the governor in my Grand Prix. Uh, I was traveling on I-90 when Montana didn't have a speed limit. And I thought, well, then neither does my car. So I got to, I don't know, 138 miles an hour, and then the governor kicked in. And talk about a killjoy. It took me all the way down to like, like 80 or 90 miles an hour. And after you've gone 100 and almost 140, 80 feels like 20. So you just need more speed. So anyway, I think for Paul, because his pride just kept, God put a governor on it called a thorn in the flesh. And then uh, whenever his pride would go up, I think the thorn would go in deeper. And Paul would be like, okay, okay, I'll tone it down a little bit. So in hindsight, this may be what verse 1 is all about. David may have been looking back to his presumptuous self-confidence, which led to failure and depression, for which he feared the Lord's rebuke and discipline. That is a guess of mine. Okay? Now, when you read commentaries on Psalm 6, there's a lot of guessing going on. Okay? And, uh, and maybe I'm guessing because that fits me. <laughs> I don't know. Okay? But oftentimes, and here I think this is important, failure is all the rebuke we need. It's all the chastening that is necessary. And if failure is sufficient to turn us around so that we'll seek the Lord's face and seek his mercy, why would God bring further discipline? You know, we're often afraid of what the Lord has no plans of doing. And, and you know this by experience, I'm sure, but so do our children. See, our children have certainly feared discipline after they've done something foolish. But oftentimes, the immediate consequences for their actions was sufficient for their learning our added discipline would potentially exasperate them and injure our relationship with them. Okay? Immediate natural consequences, they're healthy, aren't they? They're healthy. So David, I think, obviously he's cognizant of his weakness and certainly of his failure, and he knows that his real need is the Lord and his mercy, his deliverance and his salvation, whatever that looks like in Psalm 6, uh, whatever that may look like in your personal experience throughout your life. It's going to be different depending on your circumstances. So he pleases the Lord to return, of course, which does imply that the Lord, at least by his perception, took a step back. Okay? Maybe it was in order to give David some room to fail or to experience life without God's immediate care. The only reason he would do that is to teach David to trust his grace more. David, this is what life is like without my grace. This is what life is like with my grace. And there was a little lesson for you. Okay? But then David makes this interesting statement, uh, troubling for some in verse 5. He says, For in death there is no remembrance of you. In the grave, who will give you thanks? How many of you guys have come to this and, and uh, struggled with the statement? 
You see, some people read this and say, see, nothing happens after you die. Dead people don't do anything. They're dead. So they don't remember a thing. Dead people, don't, don't, they don't give thanks. They're not thankful. Others say, see, when you're in the grave, the soul is asleep and does nothing until the resurrection. All right. Well, I think those are all actually very simplistic responses to the text, and, and they don't actually represent the text itself, what David is trying to communicate here. First, by the use of the word remembrance, uh, that's a very religious concept okay, that, that, that establishes a, a religious context. Uh, remembrance doesn't have anything to do with it doesn't have to do with just remembering something from the past. It's talking about the context of a worship service. A worship service. And then you add thanksgiving to it for what the Lord has done. We're talking about a worship service, probably something related to the tabernacle or the temple. See, dead people do not go to the temple in remembrance and thanksgiving. They're dead. They worship God in heaven, but their time on earth is past. Second, David is not making a case for annihilation or soul sleep. Okay, two different groups um, use this verse, one to teach annihilation, the other to teach soul sleep. Have you familiar with any of those? So when you die, you go into the grave and you become worm food, you're recycled back into the earth and that's all there is. Um, the, um, the Jehovah's Witness, the Seventh-day Adventists believe that when you die, your soul remains in your body and you sleep there, that's called soul sleep, until Christ returns at the resurrection. Okay. Well, first, it cannot teach annihilation because David clearly defends, he teaches and prophesies about the resurrection in Psalm 1610. Okay. He fully expected to be resurrected. And the scriptures don't support soul sleep for any amount of time. Uh, rather, to be, Paul says, to be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord. That's 2 Corinthians 5.8. And when you talk to people that uh, adhere to soul sleep, uh, they can't account for the period of time when they're absent from the body. So when, when, when Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord, you say, when does that occur? I don't know. Well, it occurs, according to the scriptures, the second you die, your spirit departs. And just like we see in Revelation chapter 6, the, the spirits of dead saints are in heaven. They're in heaven. Uh, those particular ones are under the altar in Revelation chapter 6. Also in verse 4 of Psalm 6, there David Remember, he's pleading for the Lord's deliverance. And then in verse 5, makes his case for why the Lord should spare his life. So here's the gist of the argument. Lord, if you don't spare my life, I cannot praise you for it. I cannot thank you for something you do not do. And, and David apparently felt like that was a compelling argument. If God can be convinced, this ought to do it. Well, with a grin on his face, this is totally something that my son Asher would say. It would go like this. Dad, I would really be thankful if you bought me some ice cream. But I can't be thankful for ice cream if you don't buy me ice cream. <laughs> I'm not exaggerating. Okay, that's what we get for teaching our children to be thankful. Okay, let's, let's find some reasons to be thankful. Okay. Uh, the same kind of pleading was done by Hezekiah when he was begging the Lord to spare his life after he fell ill. It's Isaiah 38, um, 18 through 19. So apparently it's all about a carefully fashioned argument to get your way. All right. Let's go back to David's afflictions. Verse 6 and 7. He says, I am weary with groaning. All night I make my bed swim. I drench my couch with tears. 
My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows old because of my enemies. Now I think David is becoming very descriptive in his pain, right? So David, we say we're, we're sick and tired of being sick and tired. Yeah, he's groaning about his groanings. He, he says, I'm not getting any sleep. I'm not sleeping. I'm weeping through the night. And he's basically saying, I, because of all that's happening, I can feel myself age. How many of you guys have been there? You're thinking, well, because of my children. <laughs> so he's having a tough time. And now he finally mentions the source of his troubles. This is all happening, he says, because of my enemies. But like we said, we don't know which ones. We don't know when it was happening. Okay? Uh, we do know, of course, that David lived a troubled life. A troubled life. Let me just mention some of these. He, not long after he was anointed king, he was on the run from Saul. And he ran from Saul for years and years. Imagine being a refugee for year after year after year. After becoming king over Judah, he was at war with the rest of Israel. After they made him king over all Israel, he was at war with the Philistines, the Canaanites, and all the surrounding nations. And when there was calm without, there was trouble within, as with Abner and Joab, Amnon and Tamar, uh, Amnon and Absalom, the rebellion of Absalom, the rebellion of Sheba, the famine and the Gibeonites, and Adonai's presumption to take the throne. When David wasn't fighting with the enemy, there was drama in his family, in his own nation. Okay. So David had all kinds of troubles. Where does Psalm 6 apply? Take your pick. It just makes you wonder how much was not mentioned in the narrative of Scripture. Okay. Yeah. David, though, whatever it, is, whatever it is, whatever it was, whenever it was, he's overwhelmed. And finally, it's causing him to look beyond himself. Verse 8 and 9. So he says, Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. For the Lord has heard the voice of my weeping. The Lord has heard my supplication. The Lord will receive my prayer. Now, at this point in his supplication, okay, his confidence is, it seems to be completely restored. Do you notice that massive transition there in the text? Okay? Fresh signs of faith and strength. Every indication that God has heard him, God has returned to deliver him, that salvation is in the works and it will be realized. He's saying, I know this. And he's so confident in all of it, he tells his enemies, now is a good time for you to run. He's, the king is back. And uh, it's just amazing how quickly he does that. How do we account for such a transition in David's, I mean, he's despondent, to his, and then he's completely confident. It can only be the installment of grace. That's the only answer to this. It's, it's that God has visited him supernaturally, it wasn't because of a breathing technique, I promise you. Okay? It wasn't by affirming himself in the mirror. Have you ever seen somebody do that? Psychologists should be absolutely ashamed of themselves for getting people to do that. Also, we know it wasn't a, a change in David's circumstance because he tells us right here, the enemy is about me. So nothing has changed in his circumstance. The only thing that could have happened is that there was grace from the Lord. God has revived him and he's restored David's confidence. Isn't that great? Is that possible? Is that realistic? Of course it is. Of course it, of course it is. God's mercy comes in and overshadows him. And now David is ready to get back in the fight. I love that. Yeah. Um, you guys have read the Psalms, or you've read a number of them. How many Psalms do you think has that exact transition in it? From being despondent to completely confident. It's all throughout the Psalms. Why do you think it's there? right? 
It's, it's for our learning, isn't it? That God is not distant. God is near, right? God can turn us around. He may leave our circumstances the way they are, but he can change us in the midst of our circumstances, and he can do it quickly. I, I think that transition is there as just a testimony to the fact that when, when God's people do cry out to him, that he is faithful to respond, he's faithful to rescue in his way and his timing. Okay? He distributes his grace in times of need. We have the promise that God does not forsake his people. He is faithful to keep his promises. Always, always faithful. Yeah. Verse 10, David says, Let all my enemies be ashamed and greatly troubled. Let them turn back and be ashamed suddenly. So David now, he, he says, All that I was experiencing, let it happen to my enemies. All the shame, all the depression, all of that stuff, he says, it really belongs to you guys. Okay. Let those who afflicted me be afflicted. Let those who haunted me be haunted. Okay. Let them feel the disgrace. Everything. Now, what do we do with that? Is this a good example for us to, to have ill will for those who have afflicted us? If you read the Sermon on the Mount, it's a little hard to justify it. The words of Jesus versus these here. So I, I'm not completely confident that it's a Christian virtue to say what David said. Okay? It may be that under a different form of government, a different dispensation, maybe that was fine. I'm not sure it's okay for New Covenant people uh, to have that form of disposition or, or have that disposition. I think it's understandable, but it may not be justifiable. Okay? It seems to just run contrary to the nature of Christ. Now, I will say, I certainly believe that it's healthy for people to, to receive what they dish out so they can feel the pain that they've caused, but I think it's best to leave vengeance to the Lord. How many, how many think that he's just better at it anyway, more thorough? Okay. I do, yeah. But anyway, be that as it may, Psalm 6, uh, when God's people are going through uh, adversity for whatever reason, the psalm is there to remind you that uh, God doesn't really need to return. He's already there. He's, he's always near. He is the God who is near. And in the text here, he is the God who is able, and he is the God who is faithful. So when God feels distant, it is merely a perception. It's merely a perception, which contradicts God's word and his character. Okay, so if God has allowed you to endure something, to discover weakness in yourself, that's a good thing. But he's also done it so that when you cry out for grace, you can experience all of his strength in your life. So there's nothing that God cannot handle. There's nothing that he can't get us through. And David's experience, the rest of the Psalms, it's, it, it supports, it defends all of that about the character of God. So trust him. And uh, I would say, don't go as long as David does in despondency. Look up, look to the Lord, and let him do his work in your life. Amen? All right, why don't we stand up and we'll pray. I will be doing uh, Psalm 7 next week, so I know that's, I haven't allowed you to predict what I'm doing on Thursday nights, but I'll be doing Psalm 7 next week. So read ahead, acquaint yourself with it, and we'll look at it. All right, if you have any questions or anything to add to what I said, I'd love to talk to you. Let's pray. Well, Lord, I, I think that one of the craziest things is human grief, and I don't mean that it's it's wrong. I mean that it's, it's just so mysterious. It definitely can demonstrate how, how much we misunderstand your providence 
and your sovereignty and your goodness. And I don't mean grief over the loss of a loved one. I mean grief over afflictions, tribulations and things and trials. But Lord, it's real. It's something that happens to us. And Lord, it's a reminder that we need to draw close to you. We need to let you manage our affairs, our thinking. So I pray, Lord, that you would, that through all of the things that life throws at us, that you would help us to be attentive to you, help us to trust you. And um, so, Lord, we just, we just bless you. We thank you. And, um, yeah. and I pray, Lord, also that as things continue to go crazy around us in this world, I pray that you'd give your church wisdom to address the various challenges. I pray that you'd give us moral courage to always do the right thing. You give us understanding in your word. And Lord, above all else, that you'd help us to glorify you in all of this. Lord, I, I just, more than anything, I want to be able to look back and know that we are above reproach. As decisions will have to be made, actions will have to be taken. And so make us more like you, Lord. So we thank you and we love you in Jesus' name. Amen.